I'm going to start in verse four and a half. Right there where it says, if anyone else thinks he has reason. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to these people who live in a city called Philippi about the gospel. This is what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in his flesh, that means in what we do, what we can do, our abilities. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, meaning all that stuff, I now consider loss. But now, listen, not lost. Not lost. Loss. Meaning, I don't just not look at it, but I count it as a negative now. Whatever was marked in my moral accounting of myself before God as prophet, I now put in the loss column compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that meaning that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Some of you like Bono, the lead singer of you too. Some of you don't. But if you don't think In the Name of Love is one of the greatest rock songs ever, I love you, but I don't understand you. He was once asked um, what he thought was the most revolutionary idea in the world. And he said something—this isn't a direct quote, but I understand karma. I am banking on grace. One of his songs says, Grace is the name of a girl. It is also a thought that transformed the world. Um, some decades before that, C.S. Lewis, the great historical— um, literary scholar of Oxford and Cambridge came into this discussion, apparently, of friends in which they were discussing, is there any real difference in the religions of the world? Is there, I mean, is there any real difference in, in all the religions? It was, it was fashionable in that day, like this day, to basically say that there's convergence. You look at all the religions of the world, there's convergence, right? They teach the sort of the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, that you should be good to one another, that you should love your neighbor, that sort of thing, right? And so is there any real difference? And so Lewis kind of walks into the room, and they turn to Lewis, because they know he's a Christian, and they say, they say, they say, Clive Staples, um, is there any real difference? What's the, what's the real difference between Christianity, what you believe in, all the rest of the religions of the world? He says, well, that's easy. Grace. Christianity is the only religion in the world that believes both that salvation is fundamentally and deeply moral and is no respecter of anybody's morality. It's the only one in the world that teaches that. And it's because we hate that idea. Human beings do not like it. It doesn't fit. It doesn't help us in the ways we work things out, and, and therefore it just hasn't made its way into the other ones. There are other religions that believe that God is nice. 
and even merciful in certain ways. But there aren't any that believe in grace the way Christians believe in grace. It's just, it's just a fact. It's, there aren't any. Um, to put it another way, George Whitfield, the great American evangelist, there was, there was a time in American history where four out of every five Americans had heard this man speak live. If you can believe that. He said basically this in one of his sermons. He said, to be saved, to be made right with God, you do, one of the things you have to do is, is repent of your sins and your self-righteousness, or your, your sins and, and all your selfishness, all that stuff, the stuff you know you did wrong, you've got to repent of that, and, but you're still not a Christian. He said, you can, re- you can repent of everything you know you ever did wrong, and you can repent of all of your selfishness that you know, and you're still not a Christian. He said, you're close. But then the last thing that you have to repent of is why you did all the good things you did. That's the last thing. Until you repent of your righteousness, you can't be a Christian. You've got to repent of all the bad things you've done. And ultimately, you will find when God shows you what real righteousness is, you're going to have to go ahead and repent of all the things you did good too. And then, when you are totally throwing yourself on Christ and his righteousness alone being given to you without reference to what you've done bad or what you thought you had done good, when none of that matters and it's all in the lost column, only then do you believe the gospel. Only then do you believe the good news that God gives salvation without any reference at all to basically anything about you other than he finds you valuable and wants to give you what you need. Now, the, the good news is, is that God wants to give you salvation. The bad news is that God wants to give you salvation. The implication of that is you have to give up, we all have to give up the basic programming of the human heart which will probably be with you in what the Bible calls your sinful nature your whole life, okay? Um, The human heart is programmed for self-salvation. It's programmed for self-salvation. And we don't don't think we're like everybody else because there are multiple models of self-salvation. There's two main ones. One is that Okay, and let me, let me clarify something before we go any further. Before we go any further, let me clarify what I mean by salvation, because you might think I mean going to heaven. That's not what I mean. For, for general purposes right now, salvation just means the good life you want. Which, if you know you're a human who's going to die, living forever might sound kind of good. So going to heaven as part of that package, that's— it's pretty good. And, it's, and if you really believe in immortality, and we don't live very long, you might think that's a pretty big part of salvation, I, I tend to. But it means everything we're after. Meaning, significance, hope, direction, some sense of understanding of what the world really is, a sense of acceptance, whatever comforts we hope for, whatever profit we— whatever, whatever happiness we hope for is our— view of salvation. Now, that might not be the one God wants us to have, but everybody has in their mind something thereafter, and that is your concept of salvation. And there are a few ways to try to get that. 
And one is, um, one is basically the irreligious approach. It is the, thank you very much for all of your advice. Religious people, moral people, political people, social people, teachers in high school, whatever. Thank you very much for your advice. But listen, the most important thing I need to have to make sure I get the salvation I'm after is freedom. I've got to be able to do what I want to do. Because if I don't have that, what's going to happen? I'm going to lose the opportunities that I need to grasp my salvation. And so if I believe in lifelong monogamous fidelity in marriage, what's going to happen when my husband or wife turns into a jerk and I know another person who's interested in me who would treat me better? Or, you know, what if morality says thou shall not steal, and I've got a really good opportunity to Shanghai somebody in a business deal or in something where, I mean, I can really make out well. Or the idea of respecting other people. Well, what if I really, I mean, what if I really can nickel and dime everybody that works for me and make a lot more money? Or what if morality is going to get in my way? Listen, listen, morality is going to get in your way, right? Okay. Honestly, raise your hand if it has never happened to you that you wanted to do something and on some level you just really thought it was wrong and you were like, has that not happened? Is there anybody that hasn't happened to? This week. (laughs) Right? Happens all the time. All the time. I went to the the Desire and God conference, right? With um, with, uh, Shirley and Fran Dieter, right? So Shirley and I, we pulled into this gas station, right? We're, and we're just buying stuff. It's a gas station. I'm just getting Twizzlers. That's it, right? But when I walk up to the counter, what's at the counter? Hustler Magazine. I'm not allowed to have Hustler Magazine. But I want one. Of course I want one. But I can't have one. So I didn't buy one. And that's one of the reasons I travel with Shirley. <laughs> she would have grabbed one of those wine bottles, broke it, and just cut me deep. I mean, I just, it's not an pr- option. You know? But I've been a Christian, you know, I don't know, 18 years or something like that. I, I figured by now I, would, I, I wouldn't want me any porn, but I sure do. It, but I can't have any because morality is getting in my way. And listen, I'm just on a different salvation model. I'm just believing Jesus is going to give me what I need. It's just, it's the model I'm on. I'm not on that model anymore. But that model is used by a lot of people, isn't it? And it's used by most of us some of the time on, to a certain amount. Right? But there's a whole nother model. There's the religious model. Right? There's the, there are these rules out there, and if I follow them, and if I work them, I'm going to know the right people, be with the right people, be respected by the right people. People will trust me. That's good. You can get ahead if people trust you. You can get ahead if people think you're a bright, upstanding kind of person. More, you know? Because, you know, all those young rebels, they don't—who has the power? Who has—all the, all the old people have the power and the money. And so either, listen, there's only a few Google starters and Facebook starters, okay? The, cha- the chance that you're going to be one of these people who just starts up a multi-billion dollar, whatever, okay, not going to happen. It's not going to happen, right? For most of us. So that means we got to get the old people to give us a job and money and the stuff we want. Right? And the best way to get that is to be good and play by their rules and to do their stuff and to get in position and blah, 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 blah. And listen, I, look, I know we're way too sophisticated to think that's true about us. 
But deep down, most of us really believe that if I live a good life, I ought to get a good life. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. It's right, that verse is right next to cleanliness, it's next to godliness, and that God helps those who help themselves. Grace is the idea that salvation is not by any kind of merit or wage or entitlement or anything you deserve. That the way God relates to you, what he gives you, how he blesses you, all that stuff has nothing to do with what you deserve. Nothing. 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 That doesn't mean that God doesn't bless people who follow him. He does. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't exert discipline or even judgment on people who don't. He does. But it's not zero sum. It's not in direct proportion. God is free and chooses, kind of like a parent. It's not all accounted for. He, he does what he wants to do. And some people, he blesses, just, it's stupid. You know, you're like, what? Are you serious? And it, it, it can be really, fr- you know, like you, you met the person who's like good looking and rich and has the incredible spouse and drives that really nice, and, but is also godly and relatively humble. And, and you're like, is there some point where like, you just kind of cut it off, God? I mean, what's the deal here? I mean, Seriously? There's this point in, um, in, uh, in David's life. I don't remember this. He's become king. He's in a castle. He has all this money. Uh, I mean, he's just, he's the man. And um, he decides he's going to have an affair. So he has an affair with this woman, Bathsheba, right? And do you remember how God, what God says when he rebukes him? This is what he says. He goes, David, you are a shepherd boy in the middle of nowhere. I mean, just, you were, you were nowhere, right? And then he says, and I, I, I picked you, and I gifted you, and I raised you up, and I, I made you king, and I gave you victory. And then, do you remember what he says? He says, if that hadn't been enough, what does he say? I would have given you even more. I would have given you even more. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, well, how about me? Can I have a castle? I haven't had an affair. It's, it doesn't work that way, right? It's grace. God just does what he wants. He's free. And one of the things he wanted to do was to offer salvation to everybody. And it has nothing to do with how much you merit it, whether you deserve it, whether you feel like you're entitled to it, or anything like that. It's simply God decided he wanted to. It was just favor because he had compassion because of our situation. Because he loves us. And because he's, he's merciful. Do you notice that that column, the column over there, that that's, has everything to do with who? God, right? What, what does the other column have everything to do with? Us, right? That's part of the point, isn't it? That's part of the point God's trying to get across in salvation, isn't it? That salvation is from the Lord. It's from God. It comes from him. It doesn't have anything to do with you or us other than God wants us. He wants to save us. He wants to exert his compassion on us. He wants to care for us. He wants to save us. He doesn't want to leave us where we are. He is the sort of being that enjoys to deliver from trouble and pain. And he likes to do that. 
And that's the only reason he does it. Now, here's the problem. Virtually all of us, most of the time, even really good church people who really love Jesus and read their Bibles, tend to be on one of these self-salvation models rather than on the gospel model, which is God freely gives to you, and you just live back out of response of love, and that's all there is to it. Most people have a hard time with that program. I have a hard time with that program. Do you have a hard time with that program? I'm usually in this column over here, wishing I could be in that column over there. That's real life. Most of us are on one of these two self-salvation models. Neither one of them is the gospel. Neither one of them is what God wants for you. Neither one of them is Christian salvation. Neither one of them is what Jesus died to do. Jesus did not die to make you moral. He did not die to make you a good, upstanding person. He died to rescue you. Away from damnation and condemnation and our sinfulness and all that stuff, and to make you like himself because he wanted to be with you relationally, and so that you could enjoy him forever. Not so that you could be a good employee and do everything just right according to the bureaucratic plans that have been laid down in big three ring binders in heaven. The gospel will make you a good person. But that's not what the gospel is. And friends, we forget that so fast. It is unbelievable. Martin Luther once said, not one in 10,000 in the church really lives by the gospel in their heart. But here's, here's the problem with our frustration with the whole, this concept of grace. Because we really do have a problem with it, most of us, most of the time, is that it is just all through the Bible. It's everywhere. That's why I don't have a text for today. It is constantly being brought up everywhere in the Bible, every second, every time, every place. Here are just a few examples, and I am not going to spend much time on them because I will talk too long. Number 21. Remember what happens in Numbers 21? The people complain against God. They're like, you, you're a jerk. And he's like, really? Okay, let's see what happens. And so these poisonous snakes come into the camp, right? Start biting people. People start dying. And then then what do they do? Who's the only person who can save you from God's wrath? God, right? So they cry out to God. They say, God, help us from you. And God says, thank you. And he says, here's what you do. Make a big metal snake. Put it up on a pole. If anybody gets bitten and you just look at the snake, you'll live. That's it. All you gotta do is look at the snake. And they go, okay. So they make this bronze snake. They put it up on a pole. People get bit. They look at the snake, and they live. And the people get bit and don't look at the snake. They die. And you're like, that's kind of weird. How'd that get in the Bible? Shouldn't we try to forget that part? Can we make an expurgated version? Well, then Jesus brings it up, right? John 3, what does he say? Just like the snake was lifted up in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up so whoever looks to him will be saved. Right? He says the snake in the desert, that's the whole gig. It's the whole gig. The whole, whole Bible could be one verse. It's the whole thing. You are dead. You say, God, help me. He says, just look right there. That's all you got to do. That's it. Condition of faith. That's it. Just look right there. I have to look? 
You're so demanding. Just, just, just look. Oh, a snake. Oh, I feel better. Jesus, Jesus said to the religious scholar guy who thinks everything's really complicated, he said, look, dude, it is really that simple. It's re- now look, it's going to take you places you have no idea you're going to go. But this, it's, the good news is really that simple. God rescues those who call out to him and look to the one he's provided. That's it. Right? Habakkuk 2.4. You know what Habakkuk 2.4 says? He says, God says through the prophet, my righteous one will live by faith. Right? Not, my righteous one will live by his righteousness. My righteous one will live by, not what he does, but by his trust in me. That's why he's righteous. Because he trusts me. Right? That's while an enemy army is breathing down their necks. Right? Psalm 50. You know what Psalm 50 is? It is a psalm about thanksgiving offerings. Sound great? Let's all open our Bibles to Leviticus 3, right? <gasps> you know what thanksgiving offering is? It's when you like what God has done in your life, and you say, you know what? Let's just let's bring a thanksgiving offering. So you bring like a goat or a lamb or a bull or whatever, and you slaughter it before the Lord in the temple, and you say, God, thank you. And then do you know what happens to the offering? They cut it up, and the people who brought it eat it together in this like fellowship meal, Right? So that's pretty nice, right? And you know what it says in Psalm 50? First five, six, seven, eight verses is this. God's like, dude, I'm way bigger than you think I am. Okay? And then he gets to the things he says. Now, when you bring a Thanksgiving offering, let me talk to you guys who are self-righteous about this. Um, do you think, like all the other pagan gods, you're feeding me by the bull? You think I need this bull? I don't need this bull. You know that verse— God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which we think means he probably could give us money if we asked for it. You know that verse? It's in Psalm 50. You know what God is saying? He's saying, dude, I don't need you. I don't need you. That's what it means. It means I don't need you. I don't need your bulls. I don't need, you. I don't need the stuff you— Listen, if he's like, listen, if I was hungry, I would not ask you for food, okay? I own the whole earth. And if you think that your little thank offering impresses me, <laughs> it doesn't. And then he gets to the end of that, and he's not just snide with him, because he's a little sarcastic. It's a little sarcastic, right? But he gets to the end of that. You know what he says? He said, listen, let's just do it this way. Why don't you just bring the offering and be thankful, and I'll just help you? Why don't we do it that way? Instead of you thinking you're putting me in your debt, and then I've got to bless you, and it's some kind of like customer or whatever relationship, let's just do it this way. Let's just, when you, you need help, you just call to me. Kind of like I'm good. You just call to me and ask me for help. And I'll give you help. And then you can just be thankful. How about that? Novel idea, right? Or um, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. I mean, it bas- it's basically like, basically, look, um, you've made a wonderful contribution to the story of salvation. It's called sin. Um, <laughs> and uh, God, and then, and then in verse 4 or 5, I can't remember which verse it is. It says, but God... Because of the great love by which he loved us, out of compassion, out of grace, because of his mercy. I mean, just start counting the right-hand column words about how good God is. He gave Christ 
to us so we could, by faith, receive him. It has nothing to do with you. You didn't do anything. God is just, God is just good. He's just loving. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He just gives Christ. He just blesses you. He gives you everything. Makes you heir with Jesus. Teaches you how to be not an idiot. I mean, just all kinds of great. He just gives it to you. Right? That's Ephesians 3. There it is. Romans 1 to 3. You know what Romans 1 to 3 is? Romans 1 starts out, God is powerful. Rest of Romans 1. Uh, all the irreligious people, whoo, it's idolatry. They're worshiping themselves really bad. And then chapter, you know chapter 2 is? All you religious people who are judging all the irreligious people, um, you are very similar <laughs> in your self-righteousness. And then, you know, chapter 3 is? Everybody stinks for 20 verses, right? Gets to the end of verse 20. For no one will be counted righteous in God's sight by their actions, by their observing the law, Right? And then it says, but. But is a great conjunction in the Bible. You ought to be really glad for the conceptual nature of the conjunction but. Okay? Because then it says, but there is a righteousness. There is a righteousness. Apart from law that has been made known to which the law and the prophets, they talk about it, but they aren't it. And it comes by faith in Jesus Christ, looking to the one God has prepared, right? Galatians, I wish you don't have time for this. There's this, there's this part in um, Hebrews 11 where the author is going on about all these people who had great faith. And then he gets to one point, he's like, well, we don't have time to write about this guy and 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 this guy. So I'm just going to move on. <laughs> And that's what it's like when you're trying to do a biblical theology of grace. I'm just telling you, it just keeps going. Luke 7 in the 40s, remember that one? Jesus goes to Simon the Pharisee's house, and this hooker comes in and is crying and washing his feet with her hair. And the guy, what's he doing? Is Simon going, well, that's very interesting. No, he's judging God, right? Which is what we do when we're self-righteous. We judge God. We don't like his morality, right? And what does Jesus say? You know what? Simon— Got something to tell you. Um, people who know that they have received mercy, guess what emotion wells up in them and bursts out? Do you think it's condescensional, self-righteous frustration and anger? Do you think that's what happens? Now, I'm paraphrasing Jesus, by the way. Um, but you can go read it for yourself. That's why I put the slide up so you can write them all down and go study them all. Um, he, he said, no. He said, when you get forgiven and you realize you've been forgiven for a lot, guess, guess, what, guess what happens in here? Guess what happens? Love happens in here. An overflowing sense of absolute joy and thankfulness. And you know what you do? You do crazy stuff like crying on people's feet and thinking your hair is a towel. Okay? It happens. It happens. People do not normal things. But guess what happens when you think you're a pretty good person and people who live good lives deserve good lives? You get angry at that kind of person. You get mad. And here's one of the things that's, that's really important to recognize. The self-righteous, the people who, who self-save, you and me, when we self-save through self-righteousness, we are at a disadvantage salvationally to the profligate. Do you know that? Do you know that we're in much more spiritual danger 
than the irreligious, unrighteous, freedom-loving, libertine person. Do you know that? And here's why. It's not because it's more wicked. In a way, maybe you can make the argument, but that's not the biblical reason. The biblical reason is is that the barb on the hook of self-righteousness is bigger. It is so much harder to get free of self-righteousness. Think about it. Let's say, let me tell you a little story. Let's say my wife and I are sitting in a room, and she comes to me. She has a little Excel spreadsheet in her hand, printed out, and she says, Nick, turns out we're out of money. Now, how am I going to respond to that statement? Nick, we're out of money. Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends. Now, if we just spent the last five years eating a lot of Santa Fe beans and rice— trying to save every penny to try to make a certain amount of financial progress to accomplish certain goals, what is my response likely to be? Frustration, anger. This is participatory, right? I'm going to be mad, right? I'm going to be mad. Be like, baby, what do you mean we're out of money? Have you been buying baskets and decorative things again? (laughs) Things that we desperately need? Because I didn't buy a shotgun. (laughs) And I've not upgraded my 1999 Saturn SL2. So, let's step outside. Right? Now, if instead we had been cruising around the Mediterranean and the French Riviera for the last 14 months, what would I say? Well, it's been fun! I guess it's time to go home, right? Now, that is a, that's a drastic oversimplification, right, of what I'm just about to say. You know where I'm going, and you know that that's an oversimplification. But if you've been libertine, and you've just been spending, and just, you know, you've just been living in the moment, you've just been, and then you just realize this isn't going anywhere anymore, and you go, you know what? I think I done screwed up. And I think I'm going to try something different. And then God goes, just look there. Just, just look there. Just believe in Jesus. Just follow him. Just realize what he's done for you. That's all. That's it. You don't got to cut yourself or like jump off a cliff or go to whatever. You don't have to do any of that. Just look to Jesus and you'll be saved. He'll transform everything about you. Loves you desperately. I mean, just loves you. Got himself nailed to a piece of wood to bleed to death for you. Just, just look to him. That's it, right? That doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> that just makes us religious people angry, is what it does. But what? Can't, can't we have like a pledge class or something? You know, I mean, just a little, I mean, a little, you know. You see, if, if, you, if you think you've been good all this time, saving up stuff God owes us, right? I've been a good person. I deserve a good life. God ought to bless me. And then you realize, and then, and, then I, and then somebody comes and be like, look, it's just worth <laughs> That bank you've been making deposits online to, it doesn't even exist. <laughs> You're going to be mad, aren't you? You're going to be mad. Be like, oh, I've been saving $700 a month on our income in a bank for my retirement, for my big God-blessing, good life payoff, and you're telling me that bank isn't even there? No, no, his name was Madoff, right? 
it didn't, it's not, it doesn't work, you know? See, you're going to be really mad. And see, that's the problem. You don't want to give up. You know, you've, heard, you've heard of the statement, chasing, uh, chasing bad money with good money, right? Sending good money after bad. That's what self-righteousness does. It just it doesn't want to give up. It doesn't want to stop. It just wants to keep going. It's, no, I'm going to stick with this. Even if I have to argue with God himself, right? Right? And the thing about self-righteousness is even when crazy stuff happens, it's, it doesn't get it. Self-righteousness has this ability to just be totally oblivious. You think irreligious, libertine, freedom-loving people, I'll do whatever I want people are oblivious? Try self-righteous people, okay? Right. There's this place in the Bible in Isaiah, um, a couple pages behind here. We're not there yet. Hold on. Here's, here's the problem. Here's what you need to know. If you don't realize, if, you, if you're full of this self-salvation on the self-righteousness side, what, we, what Keller calls religion in the book we're doing, and you don't realize it, here, that, this is what's going to happen to you. One of these four things. Or you're going to believe the gospel at some point and go, uh. either you're going to get sick of it and you're just going to ditch God and you're going to ditch the religious thing, you're going to try the irreligious thing, and you're just going to call whatever you did here your religious phase— condescendingly. Or you're just going to work harder and make it worse. You're going to be more self-righteous and still more despairing at the same time, which is just super. It makes you a great person to be around too. Or you're going to look for another message or messenger. You're just going to be like, look, if the guy at that church isn't going to tell me that I'm fantastic and that God's going to bless me and that people who deserve good lives get good lives and God helps those who help themselves and, you know, Jesus is your therapy helper then I'll just, I'll just go find somebody else, right? There's more churches. There's more, there's more messengers. There's more TV talk show people. Or you're going to self-bless, which means you're essentially going to become a self-denying hypocrite. You're going to go, well, you know, God really isn't up to speed on his blessing me tab. So I'm just going to go ahead and take a little bit of this. Do you ever wonder how ministers— have decade-long affairs while they preach really powerfully? Everyone, how, how that works? How does that work? How do you compartmentalize that? How do you go commit adultery and then go to church and just preach like crazy? And people for years go, that guy is so God. He just gives it to us from the Bible. That's fantastic. You know how that happens? This is how it happens. This is how it happens. Because they work so hard for God. They do so much. They're under so much pressure. And they do it all for God. And God just doesn't. And I just, you know what? I just deserve a little something, you know? I deserve a little comfort. Those church people, they're just mean. Right? That's how it happens. Listen, that's how it happens with you too. You just got to have that new car. You just got to do that thing. got to go on that. You deserve that vacation. You, whatever. I deserve to at least flirt with the girl at work or guy at work. Whatever, you know. You deserve, you deserve it. All that I deserve it stuff, whether it's hair color, new car, or fair, whatever it is, you know where that comes from? God isn't blessing you fast enough. You're a good person. He's just behind. You're just going to help him out. He's got a lot of paperwork, that guy. You know? Seven billion people, something like that. Um, and listen, it goes, this goes so deep. There's this passage in Isaiah chapter 37 um, where um, Israel's just been awful for generations. And um, God finally goes, you know what? They've had it. And so he sends the Assyrians to destroy them. Syrians, I, I talked about, I think I talked about the Assyrians a little bit last week. Just really, really awful, awful people. Um, just the way they mutilated people, the way they did things, just, just incredible. And their leader was this guy named Sennacherib. So Sennacherib comes with like 180,000 people. 180,000, I mean, like a big army, okay? That's a big army. 
And he, he starts conquering all these towns in Israel, and he, and he gets to Hezekiah, and he's going to take over. He's going to take over Jerusalem. Hezekiah's king. And Hezekiah, um, you know, he's like, what are we going to do? And so Sennacherib sends this guy up to taunt, to taunt God. And when he, he, goes, he goes, listen, you, you don't listen to Hezekiah. Because he's going to tell you the Lord is going to rescue you. The Lord's not going to rescue you. All the people we've conquered all had gods. None of them rescued, you know. None of those gods rescued them. You know, and you know, some of the people are like, oh, you better not talk to God that way. And he, he just kind of taunts him. And then, and so Hezekiah calls out to God. And God says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and rescue you. You have no ability to beat these guys, but I'm going to. And so God strikes the Assyrians with a plague. Kills 180,000 people. Everybody. Everybody. One night. Right? And so it just says that Sennacherib breaks camp and goes back to Assyria, right? You know what Sennacherib did? We know, because we know now, archaeologically. You know what Sennacherib did? He went home and he built these murals to his glorious campaign. So this is a mural of the siege of Lachish, which is, was like a little town in the Judean countryside. that had a wall, but it wasn't a very big town. And so he didn't go home and be like, dude, we got destroyed at Jerusalem. He came back. He's like, I'm a hero. I took all these towns in North Judah. I'm fantastic. Like, how do you get there? You lost 180,000 people in one day. And you go home and you build all these monuments to your glory. Are you serious? In fact, there's this obelisk. It's only about this big that has inscribed on it in Assyrian. Uh, he said, I went, and I went to Jerusalem, and I shut up Hezekiah in that city like a bird in a cage. And then it just sort of stops. <laughs> I love that. Just sort of, you know, I just shut him up there like a bird in a cage. I'm, I'm a big man, right? And then it says a little while later, his two sons went and stabbed him in the temple of their God. Because they just couldn't handle his incompetence anymore. That's, that's self-righteousness for you. And guess what happened to Judah. They subsequently fell right back into their sin, and God had to judge them a little while later. That's self-righteousness for you. But here's, here's the problem that we have to deal with. Gosh, I, I just don't write sermons the right length, do I? Um, <clears throat> we don't think we're self-righteous. That's the problem, right? I mean, you're kind of like, okay, so what are the signs of, self, of self-righteousness? Well, here's one sign. You don't think you're self-righteous. That's a little dirty trick, isn't it? But it's a big one. So how do, you, how do you figure it out? How do you see it? Because you got to be able to see it to say, oh, I know what that is. And then you got to take the gospel and you got to apply the gospel to that. That's what you have to do over and over in more places in your life, in more places in your heart. Yes, you can do over again. You got to find that self-righteousness. You got to find that self-salvation, irreligious or religious. And you got to take the gospel and you got to apply it. Gee, I look to Jesus for my salvation, for my hope, for my happiness, for my assurance, for my approval for my comfort. I look to Jesus for that. I look for his way, for his gifts, for just him. I don't look to this. This is, this is nothing if it's not from him, for the right reasons, in the right way. You got to keep doing that over and over. So how do you, well, you got to know, here's how you do it. It's the same way I find dandelion roots in my yard, right? Same way. What do I look for? Dandelions. That, somebody over there is the sharpest knife in the drawer. Yeah. Yeah, I look for dandelion plants and the little yellow flags they put up. Because under them, every time is the root that I'm after. 
because I got to kill that or it's coming right back, right? And self-righteousness is like that. So what I want to do for a couple of minutes, meaning, you know, 40. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I want to go through some of these flowers. Um, if you experience this to that extent, at that moment, you are on a self-salvation model, namely the moralistic religious one. Okay? One, value hypocrisy. Remember um, Jonah 4? What does Jonah love in Jonah 4? Remember? A vine. What does Jonah hate? A city with more than 100,000 sinners in it. That's what he hates. And what does God say to him? Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? You love the vine. It grew up in one day. One day. And then it died in one day, and you're mad enough to die. Shouldn't I care about that city? You know the thing that's interesting about the book of Jonah is that in chapter 2, Jonah gets grace. He gets it. He loves grace in chapter 2. You know why he loves grace in chapter 2? Yeah, because he's in a fish's digestive tract. Right? He's in the fish. Chapter 2 is hit the song of Jonah in the fish. Right? He writes a poem. He's got some time on his hands. Right? And he, what does he say? That, guess what? That's where the verse, salvation is from the Lord, is from. He does how do you earn your way out of, the, out of a fish? <laughs> you don't. You don't. You generally get excreted, right? But if that's where he gets it, when he's at the bottom, when he needs grace, when he needs salvation from the Lord because he can do nothing, he cries out to God, and what happens? The fish spits him out. He understands grace. Then he walks 500 miles and forgets it. Like Christians generally do. Usually by about Monday at 8 a.m. We've forgotten grace. And, and it creates, you'll find this value hypocrisy. The thing that you would be mad if God didn't give you, you're mad that he gave somebody else. And what it creates is disproportionate anger. Usually, if you, if you get mad, it's because you didn't get something you feel entitled to. That entitlement could be right or wrong. But, either way, you think you deserve it. And you better figure out what that means. That's one of the reasons Paul said, people, any man who has consistent outbursts of anger cannot lead the church. Why? Well, partly because he's nutty, but partly because he doesn't understand the gospel. Or he wouldn't act like that. The third is to sin while feeling justified. Why I said self-blessing. You sin, but you feel like it's kind of okay because you deserve it. That's religion. Accusations against God's morality. Remember, with Jonah, he goes, he, God says, Jonah, are you angry? He says, I'm angry! Oh no, you know what Jonah, oh, what God says to Jonah? He says, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? That's what God says. And what does Jonah say? He doesn't really answer the question, does he? He goes, I'm angry enough to die. I am angry. And God's like, um, yeah, you're a grown-up, Jonah. Right? You know what I mean? You're kind of like, he's like, I'm, I'm angry. Well, do you, do you have any right to be angry? And you know what Jonah says? 
He says, this is just what I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen when I was back in Israel. I knew. I knew you would do this. I knew that if I came here and if I told these people, they would turn and you would forgive them. I knew you would forgive them. And God's like, you're very perceptive. <laughs> but you get this all through the Bible, don't you? You get Simon in Luke 7 judging God for forgiving the sinful woman. You get the prodigal son, older son, who says to the father, the father says, come into the party. Your brother came home. And what does he say? This son of yours that spent our money with whores and and, and just do every one. He just threw away our heritage, and you just throw him a party. And the dad's like, "Yeah, you want it? There's good falafel. You should come in. He's your brother, right? What is the? Remember what the father says? He turns around. And he goes, oh, "No, that's son of mine." He says, "This brother of yours that was lost is found." That's what he says, right? But you will find yourself accusing God, won't you? And the, here's when it's going to happen the most. When's it going to happen the most? You know. When's it going to happen the most? When you, when you experience pain and suffering, right? Why did God let me suffer? Right? That somebody's going to die. You're going to get cancer. You're going to lose your job. Something bad is going to happen to you. And you're going to say, if God is so good, why does he allow suffering? As though God ever said he didn't allow suffering. Or that that was a valid question. Now, I'm not saying that's not a good philosophical question. It is a good philosophical question. You, we have to take it deadly seriously, but let me tell you why it existentially arises. Because we're mad at God's morality. Because I have lived a good life. I deserve a good life. And I should not be suffering. In the last minute, let's go over these. You aren't happy about bad people getting blessed. Right? My kid was born with a physical deformity, but that couple has five perfect children. And I'm a pastor. And they watch reality shows. <laughs> right? That's how you feel. Number six, you're not a comfort to hurting people. You're not a comfort to them. They don't come to you. You have no hope for them. You have nothing to offer them. You're not a comfort to hurting people. Um, you, don't, you don't believe people really change. You don't see yourself as a miracle of grace. And you just don't see them as ever pulling themselves up by their bootstraps like you did a great job doing. And so you don't have any hope for them. And you're not merciful to them. And they don't like coming to you. And they don't find help at your church and my church Number seven, you're not interested in making sacrifices. If somebody asks you, hey, you want to you do something? You want to, hey, how about working with like four-year-olds? The feeling that jumps up is a feeling of imposition, right? Look, I work hard. I do a lot. I deserve to relax on Sunday morning, right? I'm with kids all week. I have three babies, right? Or whatever. And, but, or, or if I say, look, there's this missionary here, and he's, he, he wants to go to Iran. And he's, you know, you may have to give for him for like five years before he gets himself killed. How about how about you give to him every month as long as he's, as long as he's there? Well, how would you feel? Would you go, oh my gosh, I could give money? That's not how you feel, is it? You're just like, look, I, I have a very careful budget and I have budgeted all my whatever and I have this plan and blah, 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 and I give what I've chosen. Or, or, right? Or, um, 
You just, you feel imposed upon, right? I, listen, do you know why I know you feel imposed upon? You know why? You know why, right? Because I feel imposed upon. Because I'm on the self, the same self-salvation, self, self-righteousness model you are most of the time. Number eight, there's no brokenness, humility. And number nine, you just don't, find your happiness in God. You just don't enjoy God. You don't like worshiping. You don't find yourself thanking God. You don't lay down at night or wake up in the morning and go, God, thank you I'm alive. Thank you I'm here. Thank you I have a day to do your will. Thank you. Thank you. You just, thank you doesn't roll off your mental or physical tongue. That's not what happens inside of you. What happens inside of you is that you're getting a raw deal. And this is probably going to be another day where you get a raw deal because you've lived a good life and you're just not getting as good a life as you deserve. But the good news is, is that God, in all these places in the Bible, is gracious to people like that, you know? All of chapter 4 in Jonah is all about just saving Jonah. He doesn't just kill him. In the prodigal son story, you know what? Let me show you this slide. I think I have a slide here. See that slide right there? That's the picture artists have portrayed of the father coming out and pleading with the self-righteous— um, It's a joke. There is no, there is no painting. If you're a painter, let me just tell you, if you are a painter, glorify God with your gift by painting a picture of the father pleading with the angry son to come in and love his own brother who is dead and is alive again. Do that. Because every painter in history who looked at that story said, I'm going to paint the, the prodigal son coming home. But, but the father had equal love for his arrogant, self-righteous son and came out and pleaded with him for him to come in. God loves self-righteous, self-saving people. He loves us. And his great gift is he wants us to believe the gospel. He wants us to accept grace. And that's what you're going to study this week. So give yourself to it wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you that that's what the gospel is. We thank you that um, you are— we not only have to repent of our bad deeds, but of our damnable good deeds. Help us to find our hope completely in you and you alone. I pray if anybody's never done that, that they'd be doing it right now while I'm praying, that they would just be calling out to you, looking at the one who is lifted up and receiving your grace. And I pray for all of us religious people that that word grace would start to mean something to us again. We pray in the Savior's name, amen.